0: It allows us to make changes today that affect our brains tomorrow. We're basically giving ourselves the power to shape our destiny by creating a better future brain, and in doing so, creating a better future emotional state, cognitive state, and general health. You're listening to Food Integrity Now with your host, Carol Gervais.
1: My guest today is Dr. Austin Perlmutter. Dr. Perlmutter is a board-certified internal medicine physician. He received his medical degree from the University of Miami and completed his internal medicine residency at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon. His academic interests center on studying the effects of burnout and depression as well as preventative care and chronic disease management. Today, we're going to be talking with him about a book that he co-authored with Dr. David Perlmutter, who is his father and is a board-certified neurologist and fellow of the American College of Nutrition. The book is entitled Brainwash, and it's pretty exciting. Brainwash is a functional roadmap for understanding how aspects of our modern world influence our brains and decision-making, providing a framework for appreciating the negative impact of these exposures. Then it offers a set of practical intervention for reclaiming our brains and improving our physical and mental health. Dr. Perlmutter, welcome to Food Integrity Now.
0: Carol, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here.
1: Well, I am super excited to have you on the show. And for our listeners, thank you for listening for so many years. This is our 200th podcast, and I just love doing this podcast and having great guests like Dr. Austin perlmutter on. I think you're the perfect person to have on this 200th podcast. So <laughs> great to have you here. We're gonna be talking about Brainwash and I, I let our listeners know a little bit more about you in the intro and what we were gonna be talking about. But I'm gonna read just a little bit of an excerpt from the book and then we'll just start with some questions. It says, When was the last time you felt truly happy, fulfilled, clear-minded, well-rested, and deeply connected, not only to yourself, but also to the people and world around you? If it's been a while, this book is for you. Modernity provides us with infinite opportunities. We can eat whatever we want, whenever we want. We can completely immerse ourselves in the vast enticing world of digital media. We can buy goods and services and even find potential mates with the touch of a button or a swipe of a finger. We can live around the clock in a virtual world where everything about us is public from our thoughts and perspectives to our purchases, photos, browsing habits, likes and dislikes and location. We think this 24-7 new reality should make us healthy and happy, but it doesn't. Our brain's performance is being gravely manipulated, resulting in behaviors that leave us more lonely, anxious, depressed, distrustful, illness-prone, and overweight than ever before. At the same time, we feel disconnected from ourselves, from others, and from the world at large. So Austin, let's talk about some of the reasons why we may feel disconnected from ourselves.
0: Yeah, you know, to, to summarize what you just read, and thank you for reading that. It's the first time I've heard somebody read the book back to me, and it's it's nice to hear. Uh, It's basically that we have everything that we should need, and I use should kind of in quotes there, for us to in theory be happy and healthy. And yet that is not the case, that we know that if you look at Americans, around 70% of American adults um, are overweight or obese and around 60% of Americans have at least one chronic disease and around 30 million Americans have diabetes, that's around 10% of the population that around 300 people around the world are suffering from depression. So what I'm trying to say is we're not in the best spot we could be given the fact that we kind of know what we need in order to be happier and healthier. That we know that eating good food is good for us. We know that exercise is good for us. We know we probably shouldn't be spending four hours a day watching TV, but we do these things anyway. So we're at a very interesting junction where we have access to the necessary information but our actions don't reflect that. We continue to act in patterns that are really self-destructive. And what we address in the book is that we need to understand that the way that we should be going about making healthier behaviors isn't the way that we have traditionally gone about it, which is to educate people on what they need to do differently. In my training as an internal medicine doctor, I was instructed on how to tell patients what to do differently. I would tell them, you need to eat more fruits and vegetables. You need to exercise. Maybe don't spend your entire day watching news. And they would say, oh, that makes sense. And yet they wouldn't change their behavior. And so I would write in my chart that the patient was non-compliant, which is a nice medical way of saying they didn't listen to what I was doing. And that generalizes, it's not a a medical issue. It's just an issue with the way we're set up. We have access to the information. We don't make healthier decisions. So what Brainwash is about is about understanding how our brain wiring works a bit and understanding how manipulation of that wiring, in some cases, uh, based on people's purposeful decision making, in other cases, based on, uh, in many ways, a, a kind of hijacking of ancient pathways in our brain that are just repeatedly activated in the modern world, that our thinking, our brain function has shifted away from a more thoughtful, reflective style, a more empathetic style, to something that is more impulsive and pursuing the instant gratification mindset. And that over time, that leads us to making poor decisions, bad choices that then negatively affect our health, but that we for the most part are operating at a really downstream section of decision-making. We're saying, I need to make better decisions. So I'm gonna force myself to do that uh, because I know the right information. But where we should be spending our time is asking how our brain wiring is affecting our decision-making and then changing that brain wiring so that we make better choices.
1: Yeah, wow. And I think many of us really understand what you're talking about because, you know, I myself, I spend a lot of time on the computer and sometimes I find it really difficult to to balance. My work is on the computer. I do podcasts. I engineer my own show. So I think there's just so many people on the computer these days, you know, because of the situation we're in right now too and everybody's using Zoom and all the different things. So let's talk about what happens with the disconnection syndrome. Can you explain a little bit about that?
0: For sure. In the book my dad and I we present this idea. It's called disconnection syndrome. It's a thing and what disconnection syndrome is is basically something that represents our disconnection from various aspects of our life but also reflects a disconnection in our brain so we talk about the disconnection that we see now between people that people are disconnected from other people We see the disconnection between humans and nature. We see the disconnection in our diet where we're eating this ultra-processed food. We're no longer connected to the soil where that food came from, from the farmers, from the nutrients in that food, and instead we're just eating impulsively because it's presented to us in a sugary, fatty way that triggers those taste receptors that make us continue to eat the unhealthy foods. Um, But then in the brain, what we're talking about is a a physical, a, a structural and functional Disconnection between a couple of different parts of the brain. And the parts of the brain that we focus on in the book are the prefrontal cortex, which is right in the front of your brain, right behind your forehead, and is thought to be involved with reflective, uh, well considered thinking. And then the amygdala, which is located a little bit deeper in the brain, it is involved with memory, with emotions, with reward. And really a disconnection there or a lack of good communication between those two parts of the brain is thought to underlie a lot of the big issues we have today as far as making more impulsive thinking or making more impulsive decisions, uh, anxiety and even depression. So what we're saying here is we see outwardly a manifestation of disconnection. We are disconnected from our health. We're disconnected from each other. We're disconnected from ourselves. And that is a representation of a disconnection that can be seen within the brain.
1: Okay, and you have listed in the book some of the symptoms and some of those are mindless activity, loneliness, impulsivity, chronic stress, chronic inflammation, poor relationships, narcissism, and instant gratification. So I think if if any of our listeners can relate to having any of these, they more than likely might have this.
0: Yeah. So thank you for going over those. The really important point to make here is that when we experience something, as far as our emotional state, our cognitive state, we have a tendency to just stop there. We say, I'm experiencing stress, and it's uh, it just because today is a stressful day. It's because I got caught up in traffic or whatever, or I'm experiencing anxiety, but that's just because I have a project at work. Um, And what we don't do is ask how that reflects our underlying brain function and structure. So even something like empathy, which seems like something that you either have or you don't, we know that empathy relates to activation in various parts of the brain, one being the prefrontal cortex, We know that you can train empathy. So studies that they've done on medical students and doctors show that you can teach people to experience more empathy, to be more empathetic people. Why does that matter? It's because empathy is correlated with a bunch of positive health outcomes. People tend to be happier. People tend to have stronger relationships when they're able to engage empathy. So again, the point here is we tend to think that the way that we experience life, the Uh, low mood or the anxiety or the stress or a level of empathy or a level of narcissism, that these are just set personality characteristics, that they're a reflection of who we are inside and there's nothing we can do about it. And what I want people to understand is that those are states that reflect what's going on in your body, your hormone levels, your neurotransmitter levels, your immune system, and all of that kind of goes into and changes your brain. So if we get curious about this and say yeah, I'm experiencing anxiety right now, what's going on in my body? What's going on in my brain? Then we can start to think about how some of these interventions like nature exposure or getting enough sleep are wiring our brains so that tomorrow we don't experience as much of that anxiety. So it's, it's a really, I think, different way of looking at something that we've tended to be a bit closed off to. We just kind of say these things are who I am, personality traits, an identity, a reflection of my identity, instead of saying, Well, actually, no, maybe there's something going on in my brain. And so it it allows us to make changes today that affect our brains tomorrow. We're basically giving ourselves the power to shape our destiny by creating a better future brain and in doing so, creating a better future emotional state, cognitive state and general health.
1: Well, I think this is going to be exciting for many people because what you just said about thinking this is just our personality, this is just the way I am. You can actually change the way you are. And you mention empathy. You talk in the book about two different kinds of empathy. Do you want to explain sure. that a little bit?
0: Yeah, I think it's an important distinction to make. Um, so let's say we're, we're videotaping right now in this podcast, and you were to slip and bump your foot. I might experience an effective or emotional empathy where I feel your pain. So that's the first type. It's basically saying, oh, I just had the actual emotional experience of what you had happen. Even though I didn't bump my foot, I still felt it. And then there's cognitive empathy, which is really the ability to put yourself in somebody else's shoes. It's not saying that I necessarily feel the same type of pain response that you felt when you bumped your foot, but it's saying, I can imagine that that would be painful, that you're not in the best state of mind because that happened to you. And I think that's really where we need to focus more of our efforts right now. When you look at, you know, Watch TV, open a newspaper, open a Facebook group. Everyone is so polarized against other groups of people. It's, I know best, and they're completely wrong. If you're a Republican, the Democrats don't know what they're talking about. And if you're a Democrat, it's the other way around. And what we know is that this cognitive empathy, which is The ability to take yourself out of your own perspective and try to see things from somebody else's perspective it's absolutely key to good relationships and i don't need to even explain the science there you can understand if you have a relationship with somebody it is helpful to see things from their perspective but as it relates to uh, i think this this fundamental need we have as humans in progressing as a society and as individuals which is learning is growing We need that cognitive empathy. Otherwise, we are shutting ourselves off to so much important information. And so I think there's this tendency right now to silo ourselves, to say, I have all the answers. Whatever is going on in the world, I can explain it because I have this framework and that explains everything. And I don't need to think about what the other people are considering. And it's just not the best way forward. So what we talk about in the book is that cognitive empathy especially is something we need to promote. And it turns out, again, that cognitive empathy is a reflection of a healthy prefrontal cortex. Again, that frontmost part of the brain that helps us to be reflective, that helps us to weigh the pros and cons of our decisions. And what's so exciting about this is that we know that there are certain things about our lifestyle that can both damage the prefrontal cortex and strengthen its function. So as we're thinking about how do you promote cognitive empathy, as we're thinking about in general, how do you promote better decision making, we know that we can do things to make our prefrontal cortex stronger, a more powerful decision maker. And in doing so, we can enhance cognitive empathy and enhance our health.
1: Wow, that's exciting. So let's discuss the brain. And uh, we're finding out more and more about the brain and that it is pliable and impressionable and moldable. And uh, on my show before, we've talked about BDNF and how you can actually grow brain cells. Let's talk about that BDNF and and how that works.
0: Sure. So as background here, I think that the the basic understanding that your brain is plastic, that your brain changes as a response to your environment, that it changes in its connections with one neuron to another, that it changes in its structure, and that to some extent, it changes in the actual number of neurons that you can grow new neurons into adulthood. And so this is getting to two slightly different concepts that that come together around this idea of BDNF. One is neuroplasticity, basically saying your brain changes as a reflection of your environment. And this is thought to underlie learning and memory. So it, it helps to explain how you know things now that you didn't know yesterday because your brain has changed, it's been plastic, it's been modified by the environment. And then the other piece of this here is this neurogenesis, basically creating new neurons. And that's relatively recent discovery as it relates to humans. We've known for some time that animals can grow new neurons, but it's only in the last couple of decades that they've shown that humans can grow new brain cells in in really about two regions of the brain is where it's been shown. One of those regions is in the hippocampus or the memory center of the brain. So why is this so important? It means that At any given moment, our brains are changing. And to let that sink in, it means that every day your brain is different than the brain you had the day before. It's been modified. And so that can be good or bad, right? If we're doing the wrong things and we're wiring our brains for unhealthy behaviors, that's still neuroplasticity. It's just not helping us. But when you say that I have the power to wire my brain for better health then you realize that when you start doing things like changing your food intake or exercising or any sort of new healthy habit, you are actively changing your physical makeup of your brain. And in doing so, you're going to become really a better person. So let me get to your specific question, which is about BDNF or brain derived neurotrophic factor described by some, including my dad, as kind of a miracle grow for our neurons. (laughs) <laughs> and and I really think about this as trying to get to the mechanisms of what promotes neurogenesis and neuroplasticity. And so what research has shown us, primarily in animal research, is that this BDNF molecule, this protein, uh, helps to promote increased neurogenesis and neuroplasticity, that it enables us to form new connections between our neurons. So it's, it's one of those mediators of learning, of memory. And, you know, as it relates to things like decision-making, the way we make choices is a reflection of our brain wiring. So if you wanna make different choices, you need to rewire your brain, you need BDNF for that. And actually scientists have found that BDNF is altered in depression. So there's a lot to think about there, but what is so empowering is that research has shown that in humans, there are some simple things that we can do to increase our BDNF levels And probably the most efficacious of these, and I know something that my dad talks about a lot as it relates to this, is exercise. So they've shown that you can increase BDNF through aerobic or resistance exercise, so more traditional running or lifting weights, which is something that I've been doing more of, that these are activities that actually increase the plasticity of our brain, letting us change and become closer to the people we want to become.
1: Wow, that's really exciting. And you also talk in the book about that we have three brains. Can you explain what those are and um, what that's about?
0: So this is, I think, to be clear, this is a conceptualization uh, that has been used by some, including us in our book. And it, it really talks about the fact that from an evolutionary perspective, Um, there seem to be these kind of organizational principles as far as how the brain progressed, where you had the first brain that we talk about, um, more of a kind of reptilian brain. And then upon that was built the mammalian kind of limbic system type brain. And then on top of that is the most recently developed brain, which includes the prefrontal cortex. And I think what's so important for people to understand about this isn't that we're, we're so certain that this is the way that evolution happened, but that there are various regions of the brain that seem to be more involved with certain types of tasks. And so coming back to the original point I made about the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala, researchers will talk about the amygdala as being part of what's called the limbic system. And the limbic system is, it's just, it's a little bit more primitive. I'm not saying it isn't important, but It not the part of the brain that is thought to be as involved with weighing the pros and cons. That's the one that really does a lot with the fight or flight response. So this is a more conserved part of the brain, meaning that it's more present in more animals, because it seems like it's so essential. You have to find a way to convert a potential fear, a stress into action. If you're walking down the road and you see a tiger, that's your limbic brain, that's your amygdala that's going to light up and it's going to say, increase cortisol increase epinephrine, increase norepinephrine. We want to have high glucose elevations in our in our bloodstream and in our brain. We want to get focused on how to fight or flee or freeze so that we can deal with this tiger. But what's really important to understand is that that part of the brain when acting alone doesn't really serve us all that well. That when we're acting from a more impulsive, more primitive part of the brain, we are likely to do things like overeat and we are likely to do things like spend our time so, uh, scrolling on social media impulsively. And so we really need the, the top-down, it's called, approach where you bring the prefrontal cortex back into the conversation so that the prefrontal cortex and the limbic brain can communicate and that enables you to make good decisions. What researchers have shown is that the connection between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala is dysregulated in conditions like addiction, in um, impulsivity, And so what we're really advocating for here is for interventions that help to restore the balance of that communication pattern, so that yes, you still get some of the um, emotional input coming up from the, the limbic brain that's saying, hey, here's how I feel about this, here's my gut feeling, but you don't immediately act on it. You're able to sit with it for a moment, weigh the pros and cons, and then move forward, because that's really the style of thinking that we need today. Impulsivity no longer serves us we're not faced with these existential threats to our, our well being on a moment to moment basis, like perhaps our ancestors were when there wasn't running water and electricity and the internet.
1: Wow, that makes a lot of sense. Well, I want to start focusing on some of the solutions in just a minute. But before we do that, I think it's really important that we discuss this survival instinct what seems even more important than ever, considering the climate we're in. People are being berated with negative news and and it's in our face. So let's talk a little bit about that.
0: Yeah, so I've actually been spending a lot of time recently thinking about this very specific point, which is what are we taking in and and trying to, to appreciate that the way that we think, the way that we act is a reflection of our inputs. And those inputs can be healthy. So if you're eating healthy food, that is a healthy input, Uh, or they can be unhealthy, as I think is the case with a lot of the news exposure we're getting today. And the reason I say that is because when you look at what you're getting in the news, you're getting a ton of negativity. Um, So you could argue, well, maybe if that's what's actually happening, then that's helpful. But it's a lot of negativity for negativity's sake. And the reason is that bad news, tends to be something we pay more attention to. It's the same kind of idea of sensationalism, which we know the news is sensational. And I don't care if you're listening to a conservative or a liberal uh, news station, their goal is to keep your eyes on the screen. And if you want to be uh, engaging, just like if you were creating a a blockbuster movie, you're going to have to put a lot of intense and sensational content in there. And so while it's great for keeping people's eyes on the screen, what it's not great for is our mental health, because we know that when we're exposed to too much stress, it is actually toxic to the brain. And it's really scary, although fascinating, to see in animal studies that when these brains of these rodents are stressed, you actually see a change in the neurons in the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala. And so think about this. when these brains of animals are stressed. When they're ramped up in cortisol, epinephrine, norepinephrine, you see that the neurons in the amygdala expand. They get excited. They love that. This is the stressing part of the brain. So the amygdala actually grows in some ways and gets more complex versus in the prefrontal cortex, those neurons will shrivel up and atrophy. So what you're seeing here is that stress, which is kind of this psychological thing that we could say, oh, well, sometimes I'm stressed, sometimes I'm not, that it translates into very real changes in our brain function, again, disrupting the connection between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala. And you see that in humans, more stress predicts a actually decreased size of the prefrontal cortex. So to translate this again, into something that is a little bit more accessible to all of us, I tell people to take a break from the news. There is this idea that we need to remain informed, but the opportunity cost or the cost of, quote, being informed, whatever that means, may very well be more stress and translated into worse physical and mental health. So we've got to be asking ourselves, what are we doing with this input? Is it serving us? Do I come away from the news with a net benefit? Because for most of us, I believe the answer is no.
1: You know, I would have to agree 100% on that. I've kind of used myself as an example. You know, for a while there, I was, you know, I I don't watch it on television, but, you know, I can get it on Google News or whatever. And I would get up in the morning and I would scroll down and I was just really paying attention to how I felt. So important. And I thought, no, because how you feel is an indication. (laughs) It's a really strong indication. And so i suggest for my clients you know when you wake up in the morning you know do some balanced breathing step outside be grateful for the day and it just changes it changes everything as opposed to getting up and going okay what's happening in the world because it's not good news
0: right well carol let's let's touch on that for just a moment because i think you brought up what is absolutely imperative. And that is the awareness of how it is making you feel. Yep. I think that most of us are having an uncoupling of that awareness that we do whatever we're doing. And then later on, we experience the consequences of it, whatever, without ever making that connection. So we'll watch the news. We'll be stressed and everything, but we're not aware that that's what's happening. We're just experiencing the news. And then a couple of hours later, we will eat a bunch of junk food. And we won't necessarily make the connection that the reason for that is because of the increased stress from the news or maybe the next day after spending the day prior on social media reading a whole bunch of horrible things you get in an argument with your spouse and again you won't make the connection that you are more emotionally reactive because of the news you may not think to yourself well actually i didn't sleep well last night and because of that, I was more reactive. And the reason I didn't sleep well is because I watched the TV at 10 PM right before bed and it revved up the amygdala and made me stressed. So being aware in the moment of what these things are doing to us, the way that we feel is absolutely imperative in being able to, uh, for us to adjust what we do for better health. This is the time issue that I talked about earlier on, which is that people don't make the really connection between the recommendations that they're getting and what the people are actually going to do that we need to start understanding moment to moment. You know, when you tell somebody something, how is that making them feel? Um, and so that they can translate that into action later on.
1: Yeah, I totally agree that learning to feel is, is key just to check in with your body, your physical body and see, see what you're feeling. And uh, it's really a good indication of, what's going on. And I think when, when we do that, when we do check in with how we're feeling, then we can make wiser choices. So um, I just, I thank you for um, talking about that because I think it's so important. So so in part two of the book, which is entitled breaking the spell, you offer some solutions. Let's talk about some of those.
0: For sure. And I've already touched on a couple of these already in the podcast um, but as we're talking about ways to create solutions to this problem, which is uh, problematic brain wiring and function, what we're looking at is trying to preserve this mechanism of prefrontal cortex activation and connection with the amygdala and the reward centers of the brain, where we're, we're trying to restore connection, we're trying to restore balance. And so the things that we talk about uh, are many, um, and I think that they will, for most people, be very much in sync with perhaps what they've already heard is important for brain health. But what I think is is important here and what is perhaps a little bit different is that if you really get to the nuance of it, you can just pick any one of these things because they're all going through the same pathway of reconnecting your brain. But if you have a specific challenge, uh, let me provide people with an example, but there's a way to leverage this information to, to really solidify this that doesn't require you to change every aspect of your life at once. Mm -hmm. So the types of recommendations overall that we're talking about are eating a less inflammatory diet, getting some exercise, getting some nature exposure, meditating. Um, Again, these are not things that are completely novel to people listening to your podcast. But let's go back to this sleep and emotional reactivity piece. So let's say that your challenge, as it relates to your interactions, is that you tend to have a short fuse, that you tend to get more angry, that you tend to um, have trouble in keeping your emotions in check when you're talking to other people, interacting with other people. And obviously that is a big issue in relationships, um, in your work and business. So research shows that when you get good sleep, that it helps to reconnect the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala Conversely, when you don't get good sleep, research shows that the amygdala is more active in response to threatening stimuli. So how do you use that? If you are a person who has issues with emotional reactivity, we know that sleep is a great way for you to help reset your brain. And specifically, I'm talking about REM sleep. So there are really two types of sleep. There's non-REM sleep, deep sleep, slow wave sleep, and then there's REM sleep. Now, why that's important is because you get more REM sleep in the second half of the night. So, REM sleep is the one that helps to depotentiate. That's a big word, but it helps to calm down the emotional response. So, if you're trying to calm down the emotional response, I'm recommending not only that you give yourself seven to eight hours of sleep a night, but that if you're going to cut it short, you cut it short on the front end, not the back end, because the back end is where you're going to get more of that REM sleep. So, really, All of these interventions are getting to that same mechanism. If you're somebody who is dealing with a lot of stress and you subsequently have trouble with everything that stress causes, issues with sleeping, issues with diet, issues with relationships, issues with thinking, you may not be able to go out and exercise. Exercise turns out to be great for stress, but maybe you're just not in the right state of mind. Maybe you're just not in the right physical state to want to exercise. Well, It turns out that nature exposure is also a nice way to lower stress. And nature exposure may also lead to, by way of lowering stress, improved connection between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala. So then I say to somebody, would you be willing to get a potted plant for your house? Because we know that just exposure to a little bit of nature in your home, a potted plant, or even really watching a video of nature can be sufficient to start lowering that stress and lowering inflammatory markers, improving people's cognitive function and maybe by reconnecting those parts of the brain. So while the interventions themselves, again, mindfulness and and meditation, uh, exercise, getting a bit of nature exposure, eating healthier, getting good sleep, while these are things that you've heard of before, what I would implore people to consider is that you can use these as targeted interventions to improve multiple aspects of your life. And it's really about experimenting with these things and finding something that you're able to do because all of it funnels into this same feed-forward cycle, which is improving your brain function so that you can continue to make more better decisions. You've gotta just find some way into that, whether that's getting a little bit more sleep, getting a bit of exercise, bringing some nature into your life that is going to enable you to, down the road, make more of those good decisions. Maybe today isn't the day for you to exercise, that sounds awful, but maybe today is the day to get a little bit more sleep. And maybe because you get a little bit more sleep, now you're going to be motivated to get exercising because you've improved your brain function and you've improved your decision making.
1: Oh, that's wonderful. And uh, I I know for me, it's all about balance. If I feel like, okay, like today, I'm going to be on the computer quite a bit because I'm doing a podcast. So then I want to be able to, or I, I choose to go home be outside do some deep breathing enjoy nature a little bit and take some breaks from just being on the computer and uh, these so the steps that you discuss in, in the book as well as what you've just mentioned they're things that really anybody can do and I like what you said you know maybe maybe you can't do any major exercise right now but there are so many d- different ways that you offer that can assist you. So so thank you for that. And you know since we're food integrity now, you know we talk about food a lot on this show. Let's talk just a little bit about diet and the importance of that.
0: Yeah, uh, so diet is obviously it's critical and I just posted about this on social media and I think I'll just kind of go over some of that because for one reason or another, most of the things that are super important for our health have become uh, kind of surrogate versions of it. And food is no exception. So instead of thinking about food as information for our body, as the building blocks for our body, as signals that change our genetic expression, um, as a way of modifying who we are from a, a molecular, all the way up to a macro level, we think about it as something that is uh, kind of an afterthought or it's something we do in the right context. So if you're at the movie theater, you'll eat some popcorn, not because the, you're thinking about what is that popcorn doing for my body, just because you're there, it's an association. And it's the same with all of these holidays. It's all just eating junk food because of the association. Um, so the, the point that I would want people to understand is food is absolutely essential in a very literal way. It's the building blocks that make you who you are, your mind, your brain, uh, your physical makeup, your muscles. And so to think about that and think about what is the information coming into my body is so essential as it relates to our conversation in the book. What we describe is the fact that the food industry, the food market, the food messaging has become really confusing and everyone's coming out with a new diet, this, that, or the other more of this macro, less of this macro, these micronutrients take eight of this supplement and everything will be, uh, fixed. And as it relates to brain health, what research would indicate is that it's a pretty simple goal. You want to support brain function by having a balance of inflammation and anti-inflammatory mechanisms. Um, and, you know, certainly it's more complicated than that, but I think for most people, that is the umbrella infrastructure that I would use just to really build a diet. And so as it relates to that, you can kind of go through and think about, first of all, what shouldn't I eat? And then what should I be eating more of? And the blanket statement I make to people is, if people have messed with it, that's probably not a food that you want to eat as much of. Uh, So the more people have adulterated a food, the less it is probably healthy for your body and for your brain. So you can think about this for every macronutrient, right? So processed fats are not going to be good for you. Ultra processed carbohydrates are probably the worst of these. Definitely not good for you. And really the same thing with protein. If you're getting protein from an animal that's been living in a feedlot for the last couple of years, been pumped full of chemicals, not so much. I don't think that those are good proteins for your body. So what we're talking about then is to choose the macro micro phytonutrients that are helpful in lowering inflammation to be clear. We all need inflammation in our bodies. It's actually quite helpful at low levels. It is said to be important for neuroplasticity. You need a little bit of inflammation to trigger that neuroplasticity. For most people, it's way too high. You have far too elevated levels of things like interleukins and tumor necrosis factor, these things that are damaging to our brain function. So we want to restore that balance. And how do you do that? I think, again, taking the stuff out is your first and most important step, especially the refined carbohydrates. But when you're bringing in the healthier versions of these macro-micro-phytonutrients, I think omegas are a huge benefit. So trying to uh, alter that ratio of omega-3 to omega-6 for a higher ratio. We know that for most people, the ratio is something like 20 to 1, 6 to 3. We actually want it to be much closer where there's more equal levels of those two. And so I think omega-3s, dietary omega-3s, are a great way to help restore the balance of inflammation. The reasons for this are multiple, but one thing that's very interesting to me is the recent science and what are called pro-resolving mediators, which turns out omega-3 is our only part of the story. You eat these fish oils or you get them from algae um, or you get them from hemp or uh, chia seeds. Okay, great. We've always talked about that being an anti-inflammatory food. But what we now know is that those omega-3s are processed in the cell membrane and then within the cell, and they create these metabolites called pro-resolving mediators, and that these guys may actually be more potent as far as restoring the balance of inflammation. So we kind of went down a rabbit hole with that one, but what I'm saying is you need to think about your macronutrients as far as the inflammatory balance of the fats. I think that the omegas or omega-3s specifically are one of the best ways to restore that inflammatory balance. And one of the ways may be through the production of these pro-resolving mediators. But we also talk in the book about proteins. And, you know, there's been a lot of uh, a lot of talk, and I'm sure on this show as well, about where you should be getting your protein. There are those who say it should all be coming from plant sources. There are those who say, if you eat anything other than an animal, I don't know what's wrong with you. And- you know, to be honest, uh, I don't know that taking the extreme is really all that helpful when most people are eating tons of added sugar, tons of processed food in general. We need to be saying what is most accessible to most people. Um, and I do think that there is a way to do it completely plant-based that is is healthy. And I do think if you choose to eat animal proteins, you should be aware that you probably don't need as much as you thought in general right. with protein. That we had this, I had this mentality when I was younger, which is eat as much protein as you can because it'll help you to build muscle and because fat is bad and carbs are bad. So you don't, there's nothing left, right? So cramming down the protein, but what researchers have shown, what researchers like Walter Longo have shown is that as it relates to longevity, you don't want quite as much protein as you would think. So lower mm-hmm. levels of protein earlier in life, and then a bit higher levels later in life um, because protein is a strong anabolic factor, right? It helps to build muscle. It helps to uh, build this up. And you need a balance there too. You need a balance of anabolic activation and catabolic activation. And this is a lot of the conversation around things like mTOR and other pathways that are interesting in longevity research. So protein here, you don't actually want that much protein. So you can look up some of these recommendations but it tends to be actually a lot less than what you might think. And if you do choose to choose uh, to eat animal proteins, then I'm really of the recommendation that you have to really look at every step in the chain. So with a plant, you might know that that is an organically grown plant and you're good. You know you know that at least you're getting what you would think you would be getting out of that plant. But with an animal, you have to think about not only the animal's living conditions, but what they were given in addition to the food. And also what were the conditions of the food? Is the food that the animal is being given pro-inflammatory, anti-inflammatory? So I'm not saying it can't be done. I'm just saying you have to be a little bit more concerned about all of the different steps in that chain.
1: Another thing is humanely raised is really important to me.
0: Right. Right. And I just think about, you know, how we, we know stress affects our physiology, how it affects every aspect of our physiology. And so if you're going to eat a stressed animal, you're taking that on too. Um, I think that that concept that you're basically taking on the, the signature of whatever you're eating is so important. And it's the same thing with plants. Um, I've been in conversations with uh, Dr. Jeffrey Bland, who's, who's really pushing right. the uh, conversation around immunity. And, you know, one of the things that he keeps saying is when you eat a plant, you're actually eating that plant's immune system. So you're getting the information from that plant. And I think it's the same thing with eating an animal. You are actually getting the molecular signature of that animal. And, you know, so that's a good and a bad thing. If that animal, if that plant was in a good place, then you might be getting a benefit. But for a lot of these animals and for plants these days, they're not raised in the type of circumstances that are conducive to a a beneficial signature.
1: Right? Yeah, it's fascinating. people, you know, I'm a nutritionist, and people ask me all the time, because there's so many different diets, and people are so confused. What's the best way to eat? Well, I can't I can't answer that question until I know the person and because it's not a one size fits all some general things like eliminate processed food and things like that. But I can understand why a lot of people are confused.
0: Yeah. And what concerns me, um, I I believe in personalized medicine. I really think that's the way we're going and we're going to be able to tailor nutrition interventions to the individual, but what you have right now are these very strong voices who are saying it is absolutely this or that, right? Yeah. It's absolutely all plants. It's absolutely all animals. It's absolutely, you have to take a ton of this supplement or you're you're in bad shape. And if you are the average person who again is eating a terrible diet by anyone's standards, I think what we should be doing is saying, okay, step one is to cut out refined carbohydrates, let's say. Yeah. Take, take the added sugar out of your diet. Everyone agrees we're eating too much sugar, except for maybe the sugar industry. So stop eating so much sugar, that will be a significant, you know, maybe 60, 70, 80% of the benefit for most people. And then you can start talking about the additional steps. But if you are a health influencer these days, especially if you're in nutrition, you can't say that you have to take a strong stand and say, you know, you can only eat celery for the next three years. That's the only thing that's good for every single person. And it's just we lose the real signal with all of this noise, which is eating less processed food is going to be good for just about everyone. It doesn't mean there aren't some people who will do poorly with a ton of fiber, right? But for most people, eating more fiber is probably a good thing. And when we lose that nuance, I think so many people are just walking around saying, well, it's too confusing, so I'm just gonna continue doing what I've been doing.
1: Yeah, and I run into people sometimes that say, It doesn't matter what I eat. I always feel the same. I can eat anything. And I think, I don't think that's necessarily true. And I think what has happened, which is what we were talking about a few minutes ago is that we've lost our ability to feel. Mm. And so they may not know because, because their body is so toxic I'm talking about somebody who eats a lot of processed food and all of that. They really, they don't, they don't really understand yet how they feel because they've lost that connection.
0: Yeah. I I love that. And um, what I mentioned earlier, I think is super relevant now, which is the time connection here. And it's, you may not feel terrible right after eating that terrible meal, but maybe later on you'll feel terrible and you won't relate it to your diet. You'll just say, I feel depressed. I feel anxious. I feel more stressed than I did before. And then you're feeling crappy. So you'll turn on the TV and watch the news so that you can distract yourself or you'll go on social media and distract yourself, or which is often the case, you'll go and eat something crappy to distract yourself from the crappiness you felt because you ate that junk food. And so- Unless you have the awareness that you spoke to so wonderfully before, you're going to wind up in this negative, vicious cycle of continuing to make these decisions that are just reinforcing your physiology for more poor choices. And to be fair, I mean, we're setting up a society that doesn't question anymore what's going on at a deeper level. It's saying the second you feel bad uh, emotionally, physically, here is a fix. And for the most part, those fixes are making the problem worse. It's especially the case with our food. We are fixing our food generated problems with food that creates more of the problems because we can't make that connection. And because they're just so readily available, we're yeah. we taught to, to self-soothe with junk foods when we're feeling bad in the first place because of the junk foods. And unless we break out of this, I you know, it just builds and builds, and before you know it, you're middle aged, and you have a bunch of metabolic dysfunction, and you're going to wind up on a medicine that is is not going to address the root cause, and is just in many cases going to make the problems worse.
1: Now, am I accurate that the prefrontal cortex is the part of the brain that also controls like uh, critical thinking? Yes. Okay. So, is has there ever been a time? as important as the climate we're in right now that we need critical thinking I mean it is so important so everything you're saying of all these tools to to assist you to help you have a more powerful brain to use that critical thinking that empathy we need it so much right now
0: 100 percent and I've said this before, but I think it bears repeating. If you think about the existential threats to humanity right now, what are the things that could wipe us off the map? They are all empathy deficits. Um, So nuclear war, you don't bomb another country if you feel something for them, that just isn't what you do. Uh, Or let's say climate change. If you care about other people in other countries, if you care about the planet, it's really hard to ignore the science of climate change. Um, you know, maybe with the exception of a, a meteor hitting Earth, I don't know if there's too much empathy involved there. But, you know, the, the point that I want to make here is that we've got to, to move past this emotionally reactive state of thinking. And in many ways, despite the fact that we have better technology than ever before, we've kind of reverted back to this calling other people out for how horrible they are and being very staunch in our opinions. Um, And really not allowing for conversation anymore. And as it relates to our own decisions, we are just so quickly funneled into one of these quick fix uh, solutions, whether that's social media or food, or buying something online that you don't need, uh, that these things are reinforced. And what we know about humans, as much as we like to think of ourselves as some unique creature is that the way that we make choices, a lot of it is unconscious, a lot of it is habitual, a lot of it is based on associations. And so the more that we program our brains to pick the quick fix, uh, the more that we will continue to do that. And that is just going to compound over time so that again, you go through a couple of decades of making the quick fix decision as it relates to food relationships, that you're going to wind up with a brain that is, is very fixed Um, in that type of thinking. It doesn't mean you can't change it. It doesn't mean you can't rewire your brain, but it does mean it's going to be harder. So that's why as much as possible, everyone needs to be thinking about how they can stop that right now. Because if you wait another 10 years, you're going to be in a worse state. Your physical health, your mental health will be in a worse state. But also the planet is going to be in a worse state. We need more people engaging empathy and thinking critically or just going to have to deal with a lot of problems that didn't need to happen in the first place.
1: Yeah, that was very well said. So thank you, Dr. Perlmutter for being a guest and and for co-authoring this amazing book. Again, the book is called Brainwash, Detox Your Mind for Clear Thinking, Deeper Relationships and Lasting Happiness. And you can buy this anywhere, Amazon, anywhere. And I'll put a link to it on the show page. But I think this is an absolute must read. And the time is now, not 10 years from now.
0: Well, I agree. Thank you so much for having me, Carol. This has been a wonderful conversation.
1: Yes, I've enjoyed it thoroughly. And we will be back next week with another great show.